0: And good evening. (laughs) Um, We won't have sheets tonight to pull over and write on because it's all uh, on the sheet that was handed out. So we'll just stick with that. And and really, all I've handed out are uh, some structural ways to understand both the whole narrative that we're going to treat, seven through nineteen. And then as well on the back of the page, uh, Ruth's speech itself. And these, uh, the the particular way Hebrew structures uh, stories and speeches is very interesting and very helpful uh, in trying to understand uh, exactly what's being said in these. So we'll spend some time on that as well. And I'll explain troth as we get into sermon, a radical Troth on the road to Judah. Now, as I say at the top of the page uh, on your handout, in 1 through 6, there's a, a enclosure so that you read, there was a famine and a man went to Moab, and then the events occur, and then you get to uh, 6, and... The return from Moab because there's food. So you can see the, the way the order is famine, a man went, she rose to return because of food. That's a, what we'll hear as a chiasm where you go to one spot and back out to where you started. Uh, and that's what's done just in verses 1 and 6. But we're going to take up with verse 7 through uh, verse 19. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That's verse six. Verse seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, that means she kissed them goodbye and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Thus, the reading of God's word. So, in the first six verses, we get no insight into what the characters have been thinking, Naomi in particular. It's just a bare description of what happened to them in verses uh, 1 through uh, 6, especially verse 5. This is the end result. She was left without her husband and her two sons. But then To the end of the chapter, it's almost all dialogue. And that's what Ruth as a whole is like. Out of 80 or so verses, there's some 55 verses that are dialogue. So the whole weight of the drama is carried uh, in dialogue. And though verse 5 sums up her devastating circumstances, you can say that the whole of chapter 1 presents the problem or the situation. And the rest of the book lays out the resolution of what happened in chapter one. And really, you could have each chapter be an act in the drama. Uh, act one is uh, chapter one, the return. The, the word return is used 12 times in the first chapter, either return to Moab or return to Judah and Bethlehem. Chapter two is the second act, the field. Three is the third act, the threshing floor. And four is the fourth act, the gates. So four acts, first one presenting the situation, the next three, how uh, her issue of losing everything was resolved. And the emphasis, again, is on Naomi's loss. In verse six, it's she arose with her daughter-in-laws. She had heard in the fields that the Lord had visited. She set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And then finally, they went. So it's about Naomi. It's what happened to her. And it, it presents her problem and what is God going to do to resolve Naomi's problem. That's what we're left with uh, in these first verses. But as they're going, almost immediately, she says to her two daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law, and need to be sure I say that right, her two daughters-in-law, return, each of you to a mother's house. It's a bit odd that she says mother's house, you'd think father's house that may be just the mother's perspective, a woman's perspective. Maybe that the mothers lived in separate houses and she thought that would be the easiest place for her to go home to each of them. But this itself was going to be hard on Naomi because at least she would have the fellowship of her two daughter-in-laws if she went back to Israel or to, to Judah. But She's cutting herself off from even them because she feels like that's the best thing for their survival. And we're talking survival because you could, you may fault her and say, well, look, you're sending them back to false gods. It doesn't matter what (laughs) would happen to them. They're better to go to Israel where the true God is worshiped. Maybe you could make that case. But this is about her emotion, her suffering, her sense of loss and devastation, and she doesn't want to suck her her daughters in down the hole with her. And so she's really trying to protect them. So this is a noble thing for her to tell them to go back. And she prays that they'll find chesed. This is the word that we've been talking about, um, that they will find this This kindness from the Lord as they have shown this kindness to her sons and her husband and to her. So she's praying for their good. She gives them the kiss of goodbye as if to say, I'll go where I need to go. Now you go where you need to go. And as far as Naomi's concerned, that's that. I kiss you goodbye. I tell you that the Lord will be with you and, and he'll love you. Hopefully, as you have loved uh, mine. But no, they won't take it, right? And at this point, it looks like both of them are going to come back with her. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Very definite. No, we will not go back. We will return with you to your people. And there's this back and forth, return, crying, return, crying, crying. It's a very emotional scene. And the word turn back is the same word as verse seven, return to Moab. And she says, why are you doing this? She's not asking for real reasons, obviously. It's the... It's, it's when we get frustrated and we just say, why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. There's no future if you do this. This is not going to be good for you if you follow me. There's nothing there. Why are you doing this? She even uses not the word for womb, but the word for just insides. Right. When she says, do I have sons inside of me? <laughs> right. That's an emotional statement. Do I have more sons inside of me that they can become your husbands? I'm too old to have sons. I can't give you sons. It's impossible. If I had a husband tonight, are you going to wait till they're grown? You just hear her arguing and fighting and trying in every way to convince them you cannot go with me. And then she says, it is too bitter for you Basically, what she means by this is it's too bitter for you to be a part of what I'm going to be a part of. I will not have you join in my bitterness. The hand of the Lord has gone against me. Don't you see I'm going to the land of Yahweh, Yahweh, who's ruined my life. There's nothing for me and there's not going to be anything for you. He's against me. He's taken away my husband. He's taken away my sons. All the hope that I had in the world is destroyed. And certainly that was true outwardly for her. A woman had no hope outside of these relationships. I mean, it was proverbial, the poverty of widows, widows, the helplessness, the likelihood of economic disaster and injustice and physical abuse The hand of the Lord has gone against me. We'll see more of her struggling with the Lord next week in verses 19 and following. This is a sinking ship here. Don't get on it. Don't join in with this bitterness. Don't be a part of this walking disaster that has become my life. Do anything but associate yourself with me. Well, at that point, after this passionate cry, don't cast in your lot with this hopeless catastrophe, this deadly debacle. Orpah basically comes to her senses, Naomi would think. And you notice in your little outline that... uh, In the first narrative transition, C, she kisses them goodbye and they all weep. But notice the order is reversed. And this is what the Hebrews do in their poetry and in their storytelling. It starts with weeping and then Orpah kisses Naomi. So Naomi kisses them by, they they weep. Then they weep. Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye. That's that, but Ruth clings to her. You Just expect, surely after all this, the girls are like, okay, okay, we got it. You're right, we need to leave. And Orpah did that, but Ruth clings to her. It's a sensible thing to do, to say, well, I see your point, I got it, I'm off to my mother's home. It's a sensible thing to do. It's, she's a being obedient to her mother-in-law. She's shown kessid to Naomi's sons and to Naomi. The text doesn't fault her for leaving. It's the reasonable, legitimate act of self-preservation. I mean, after all, she chooses not to jump over the cliff with Naomi, but to walk away from that cliff. And Naomi says, there's a cliff coming. I'm urging you, don't jump up, uh, over it with me she was a good woman who had done good things in this household. She listened to her mother and she walked to her home, but Ruth clung to her. And this is a covenant word. It's a covenant word in marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. It's a covenant word in our relationship to God. In a passage like Deuteronomy eleven twenty two, it says, that we're to uh, hold on to, to him, that, that we're to keep his commandments, to love the Lord, to walk in his ways and to hold fast, to cling to him. So this has strong covenantal overtones, strong language in terms of relationship. And even again, Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has returned. You return." And it's interesting, except for when Ruth is mentioned in verse four, it's six times it refers to daughters-in-law or her calling them daughters. No name, six times. Just daughters-in-law, daughters, daughters. And then Orpah kissed her goodbye. Ruth clung to her. She comes out in such an amazing way. She's just... One of the two daughters-in-law that are crying and, and fighting with their mama and then one of them, Orpah, leaves and she's left clinging. And again, we're still looking for the answer. How is Naomi's situation going to be resolved? What's God going to do? And here it begins to break out. We're not sure of what all this means that Ruth is clinging to her and Ruth has this glorious speech but with the situation presenting itself you, you're figuring okay this has got to be good this has got to be good that Ruth is committing to her in in this way and it means when when it says don't urge me it really has a it's a It's a strong, it's strong language. Don't pressure me again to leave you. Don't pressure me to leave you. Stop pushing me away. Don't tell me to return again. She's just bucking up and saying, this ain't happening that I'm leaving you, okay? And you might as well leave that alone because I'm not going anywhere. Stop pressing me to leave. And then as you look at her uh, speech that I have on the back there, you notice that the two B's are verbal sentence pairs. Don't you love English Uh, (laughs) or Hebrew, right? So they're verbs and they go together. You can draw a line from B to B. And it's like wherever you go, I will go wherever you stay I will stay I will be with you in every part of your life Doesn't matter where you go or what you're going to do I will be with you And the continuation of that is be prime where it says even to the end every part of your life and even when you die I will die with you. And it will go beyond that because my bones will be buried next to you. You can just feel the emotion of this. Wherever you go, I'm going to be there. And even when you die, I'm going to be there. And even when your bones are in the ground, my bones will be right next to you. It's just such an emotional, uh, committed uh, speech here to her to say, I am yours. And this middle part, and that's what the, the chiasm will do, it, it isolates or, or emphasizes the middle part that this is the heart of everything. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. And I wish we could get it in the Hebrew because it's just four words there. It's like pointing to your God and my God. amecha Ami. Eloheka, Eloha. That's how short and staccato it is of your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And this points to chapter two, verse 12, where Boaz says, you've come under the wings of Yahweh. And here she is saying, I will be under your God. She's like Rahab confessing the God of Israel uh, who, held, held clo- who held fast and, cl- and clung to Yahweh herself and abandoned her gods. And this is the heart, this is why, this is the heart of her going where she goes and dying where she dies. She's fundamentally saying, I'm coming under your God. I'm com- coming under his care. Phyllis Tribble, a woman who wrote on Ruth, observes that the entire epic of Israel, only Abraham matched such radical commitment. However, he had a call from God and he was a man in a man's world with a wife and family for support. And then on the other hand, and this is a quote now from her, Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support group. And she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection indeed of death. Consequently, not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth's. And there's more. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country, and faith, but she has also reversed Sexual allegiance, a young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There's no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. She makes Yahweh the guardian of her future. She puts herself in his care. She has nothing else. No matter how secure it would be to go home, she cannot do it. She will be with Yahweh. And then she says, may the Lord do so to me. And this matches how she started. Do not press me. But may the Lord do so to me. Now this phrase occurs 12 times in Samuels and in Kings and they never say what the Lord may do to me but there's plenty of statements of curses in the Old Testament and it can be disease, famine the rain is stopped it can be war God's got a lot of different ways to bring down uh, the, his, his judgment upon people famine, sore disease, plague Whatever he can curse in so many ways, but by her saying this, it's basically saying, "May the Lord do all this to me and anything else he can think of. The sky's the limit. Whatever possible curse he can dream up, uh, dream up. It's open season on my life if I don't do what I have said. If I don't commit myself to you to this." Hesed love, this committed, faithful, steadfast, unfailing love. I bind myself to you no matter the cost. And in this story, Orpah didn't do anything wrong. Her love for the family is even praised by Naomi. And you can understand Orpah, but the text. Is calling you and me to follow Ruth. That's what the narrator is underscoring. That we're not going to be an ORPA and do the normal thing. He's calling us to be Ruth, to emulate Ruth. He's calling us to shocking goodness. He's calling us. To remarkable kindness that goes beyond what anybody could have expected in this situation. He's holding this up to us as the glorious example of the story of committed love one to another and how God uses that committed love to transform life. And he will use your committed love in your families and in this church and in this community to transform life no matter what's happened to us, okay? No matter what we've been through, nothing has to stop us from exhibiting the powerful, sacrificial love of Christ in our community and with one another. Nobody can take that away from us. I titled titled this um, a radical trough Okay, now I've done some weddings using the Anglican service and in the service, the word troth is used and he uses the word troth and then she uses the word troth. You may have heard this before, but he says to her after many several other things, his final statement to her is, I plight thee my troth, P-L-I-G-H-T. I I plight thee my troth. Plight, as you know, troth means pledge. I plight thee my pledge. And plight, as you know, is if somebody's in a plight, they're not in a very safe situation. They're They're in a dangerous situation. It could be misinterpreted to be saying I put myself in a bad situation by marrying you. (laughs) If that's what it meant, she would say, well, I plight you right back, right? (laughs) But it actually is a tender statement. I endanger myself for your sake. It's what God did in Genesis 15. Passes, you know, just like human beings make covenants, they would separate animals and then they would walk between them and they'd say what? May I be torn apart just like these animals if I don't keep this promise. And so in effect, the husband is saying, may I be torn apart. I, I endanger myself, whatever it will cost me, I will pledge myself to you. And then, I think this is lovely, instead of her saying, I plight thee my troth." She then says, in response to his endangering endangering himself, she says, then I give you my troth. See, only give your troth if somebody plights his troth. (laughs) Good lesson, right? If he will sacrifice himself for me, then I can give myself to him. Well, I had one incident where a couple had come across vows that, uh, that borrowed from this statement by Ruth and they, they w- wove it into other things they were going to say and they borrowed from the NIV version of Ruth and Patrick said this as part of other things that he said as Christ taught us as Christ laid down his life and taught us to love by uh, laying down his life, I too will gladly lay down my life to protect you. And then he said, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates me from you. And I mean, when he said that, you could kind of feel it in the audience, in the, the people that were there in the church. May he deal with me ever so severely if I don't keep this pledge to you. And then she, as Christ has taught us to serve, I will gladly serve you. And she said the same thing. May the Lord deal ever so severely if anything but death separates me. It kind of made me tremble to hear it. But you see... That's the kind of commitment that we not only make in marriage, but that's the kind of covenant commitment that we expressed as we took the covenant meal this morning. That we're brothers and sisters. We're bound by the blood of Christ. We have no choice but to give ourselves relentlessly to each other's good. And may the Lord... Give us grace to say, may he deal with me ever so severely if I do not love you with all of my heart. And of course, how rich is this for believers? We saw these passages last week. I'll just run over them, but we're called to shocking goodness, aren't we? If you want to be, if you want to look like the father, if you want to be, Show that you're his child and you have his character and you're imaging him, you're reflecting him, you're manifesting him. Then then you have to love your enemies, you have to pray for those that persecute you. And then he basically mocks other kind of love. What does it matter if you love those who love you? The tax gatherers do everybody. Any pagan will do that. I mean, you just see Jesus just saying, This isn't real love. Love, love. It's when you love those who hate you like the Father pours out good things every day on people that hate him. Be be like him. And of course, the good news is he he so saves us, he enables us to love like he does. We can't do that on our own. We're, We're not capable. Push a button and say, okay, well, I'll just love like God loves. I have to be saved to love like that. I have to be rescued. I have to have the Holy Spirit to even begin to move in that direction. But that's shocking goodness. It's like flower, a flower coming out of concrete. How did that flower grow right there? It shouldn't be there. The love that we show, they should respond and say, I don't know how in the world you could love in this situation. Hopefully that could be kind of the regular thing. In our lives together. In Matthew 25, you know, this one one really, really gets to me as we talked about it last week. But here's Jesus presenting the situation of people in prison. And of course, they've been thrown into prison because they're believers. And you think, if I go and visit them and clothe them and give them food, I could end up in prison with them. I could lose my house. And Jesus says, if that's your decision, you will align with the goats. My sheep are the ones who sacrifice, who give love where you couldn't expect it, couldn't even think it. And I, I say that with, I, I say that not like to come down on you. I'm it comes down on me. I, I mean, it just that undoes me. But that's nothing else but what Jesus said: "Love one another as I've loved you." Right? He sacrificed Himself. He came from heaven all the way to the point of the death on the cross. He humbled Himself, and it's simply just love others like I love you. That's what's given to elders in Acts twenty twenty eight. Love the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Shepherd the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So the same love with which he bought them, you, you shepherd them. You shepherd them in that way. But how encouraging. If God so worked in a Moabite girl who was a pagan and became a believer in Yahweh... What's he going to do for us in Christ, brothers and sisters? What's he going to do for us who have the Holy Spirit as never before in the history of the world, now in the new covenant? And one of my favorite passages, Titus 2.14, says that he died to redeem us from every lawless deed. And and lawless would mean from every way that we didn't love people or love God because the law is love God and love people. So he redeems us from all our lawlessness, our refusal to love or our, our uh, weakness in love, our, our, our hatred, our bitterness, our gossip, all of these things. He redeemed us from that so that we would be zealous for good deeds, zealous to love. Now that's setting the bar, isn't it? That we, by his grace, would have a zeal to love one another and to love a dark world. Titus 2.14. That's encouraging, though. That tells us the level of his salvation for us. He saves us for radical love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great salvation. Thank you for what you did in Ruth. And, Lord, how this encourages us that we, in our particular situation, in our particular callings, can manifest a love that is like Christ's, a love that wouldn't be expected. Lord, help us husbands to do that with our wives, wives to do that with their husbands, parents with their children, brothers and sisters in a home to do it for each other. For our neighbors, for one another in church, O oh Lord, pour out your grace in our lives that we will manifest Christ. We pray this for your glory and honor. Amen.